Welcome to the 15th episode of the official SPGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Selma, thank you so much. Um, everybody, everybody ought to know Uli Baumann, and if you don't, you're going to know him, because as I understand it, he is now the new president of SPGAN. Uli, you've given me a what I must call a bullion cube, a Magiewurzel of a Lebenslauf of a curriculum vitae. It's one page long. Of course, it doesn't mention this new distinction. That's a new distinction. But it also doesn't tell me much about your life before you started in medical school. Where do you come from? Thanks, Alex. Um, I come from the north of Germany. Um, my parents moved westwards and I was born in, lit in a little town in the north of Germany called Lippstadt. Um, this is in the middle of nowhere, but I had a very happy and enjoyable childhood. I went to kindergarten, preschool, grammar school um, and joined several activities. I did a lot of basketball, played myself, coached a team. Um, I played some theater work. Um, I did rock and roll. Um, so altogether a very pleasant childhood and uh, much less disturbed than the childhood of my own children. I had to move around with Christine and me and went from here to there to England and back. Um, so very different very different to to what other children had. So you went to Birmingham after finishing your medical school in Hannover. So an ME thesis in adult hepatology really was what suited me. But then I felt pediatrics was, was even better. So that was quite ambitious to find a career in pediatric hepatology. And... I looked around and my, my boss at the time knew Martin Bodelski and said, I could have a word, maybe he knows what to do. And Martin Bodelski said, hmm, unfortunately I haven't got anything, but I know a lady somewhere across the water and you may want to talk to her. So in a, in a week off, when coming out of being on call, I packed my my things and went to Birmingham just to see. I had no idea, no, no clear vision of what I wanted there. But it was very welcoming and said, oh, why don't you join us for a day and we see if, if we get on with each other. So... I remember it was a Tuesday, it was a busy day for the liver unit in Birmingham. They start with a radiology meeting and then one meeting, one formal meeting after the other. And in the end of that day, Deirdre said, why don't you go for an interview tomorrow? I was naive and young and so I said, why not? Let's just do that. And I really wanted the job. I really liked the team in Birmingham, I liked Deirdre. And I thought, this is the opportunity. I can do pediatric hepatology. I can do all my 
interest in, in chemistry and do pediatrics and have a, have a great team to learn from. Alex, and you know how the story went on. So I stayed there for two years, went back, continued my training in Germany, went back to Germany and so on, uh, went back to the UK, became a consultant and so on. So that's, that's where my affiliation and my close connection to, to Deirdre and the team in Birmingham came from. Gotcha. Now, in Birmingham, though, you also, you weren't just a clinician. No shame to those who are clinicians. I, I, I withdraw the word just a. You weren't a clinician. You were also a lab rat. Because one of the papers that you've asked us to talk about is titled Expression of the Stem Cell Factor Receptor Seekit in Normal and Diseased Pediatric Liver Identification of a Human Hepatic Progenitor Cell. How did you find yourself in a way to do histopathology and molecular biology. Thanks, Alex. Oh, that's a good question. I need to think. Um, I mean, it is a fascinating topic, and I was given a range of topics to choose from. I could have looked into EBV and PTLD, but I thought there was something special about liver regeneration. And we all know this story of Prometheus and this apparent amazing capacity of the liver to regenerate. Um, at the time, I, and still we don't know really how it works, but we know there is something the liver is capable to regenerate and renew itself. If we do life-related transplantation, the, the parents, the donors, regain their liver mass amazingly quickly within weeks, at least the vast majority of it. Or after trauma or after oncology surgery. So we know this happens, but it is still not fully understood. And so that was, was absolutely fascinating. And when Alistair Stray, my boss in the lab, gave me all the literature to look at, it very quickly became clear that there was a distinct difference between liver regeneration in, in mice, or rats, rodents, and in humans. And I was always more interested in, and unfortunately Alistair as well, was more interested how this would work in humans rather than in the laboratory setting in animals. Um, so it was a unique opportunity to be able to use the donor explants from the transplant program and apply the questions from the animal work. Um, Alistair had quickly identified C-Kit as a potential driver of regeneration in um, in children, and that was based on laboratory work by Snorri Thorgesen. And 
It was a long-winded journey, in particular because of the abundance of mast cells, who are all secret positive, the abundance of mast cells in the liver, in cirrhotic livers. So it was a little bit tricky to see is the expression of CKIT in the liver secondary and a, a bystander to mast cell expression in cirrhosis, or is it a genuine feature? And it was the result of two years lab work to identify CKIT as a marker for cells that link biliary epithelial biliary epithelium and hepatocytes. It was fascinating to find that out and actually I'm still proud that we made it onto the cover of hepatology with that. <laughs> with every good reason. That's a lot of work and a lot of important work. In, in effect then, after a sort of morphologic subtractive analysis, you were able to say, yes, there are cells that mark immunohistochemically for CKIT and that are not mast cells, that are not hemopoietic cells, that are located within the, and I don't know the English word for this anymore, the Schutzstück, within the bit of the biliary tract system that goes from the bile duct proper out into the canal of herring and out into the lobule. And those are the candidates for liver regeneration. If I remember right, you had six acute liver failure patients to look at, and in three of those patients, you saw a substantially greater number of CKIT marking cells than in either your biliary atresia or your non-diseased liver controls. Something about acute liver failure then turned on the CKIT cells, at least to an extent greater than was seen in a slower, longer, more chronic process of biliary atresia. Probably, at least this is how this layperson sees it, probably related to a decrease in liver mass and to a difference in the feedback that's coming from the lobule back into the bile ducts. Is that how you see it now? Yes, yes, I think that's a, a very nice summary of, of our work. What's become of the work in CKIT since you left the lab? Not just in your lab, not just in, sorry, in Professor Strain's lab, but elsewhere, a broader perspective. Looking back the 20 years, can it be 20 years since you were in the lab? Looking back in the 20 years, how have people built on your work? Um, I haven't followed that in detail, but really the question behind the CKIT is, are there unified, as you, as you quite rightly said, are there hepatic progenitor cells, are there unified hepatic stem cells that can differentiate into any of these specific liver cells? And very briefly, after our findings were published, um, um, I think Peterson was the name, um, she, they found out that there um, probably was origin from the bone um, marrow niche, that cells from the bone marrow niche would move into 
the liver to become such cells. So their findings kind of overrode our findings in the attention in the lab. And for some years um, there was more the question, can we stimulate the bone marrow niche to move into the liver? Can we identify cells from the bone marrow um, and develop them further into hepatocytes or into biliary epithelium? That was very elegant work, I have to admit, to demonstrate that um, in a transplant program, um, I think it was a, a male recipient of a female bone marrow and you could track back liver cells, proper hepatocytes from the bone marrow donor. And that in itself, it was fascinating to see and for many years um, attention was put into the bone marrow and there was less attraction, if I may say, to secret-positive liver-specific or liver-generic cells. I would say by now we know this does happen. There are liver cells arising from bone marrow, but this is probably in a very, very small number and not sufficient to repopulate a diseased organ. I take your point. I like the idea of stimulating those cells and somehow getting them to juge up the liver, to reconstitute the liver, but that hasn't been particularly successful, has it? Not yet. No, it hasn't. Well, then there's more work to be done. Since moving to Birmingham, you haven't managed a lab of the sort that Professor Strain ran. Instead, you've concentrated on clinical work, if I understand correctly. One of the articles that you asked us to consider working on, or consider discussing today, has to deal with the phenomenon of FIC1 deficiency, ATP8B1 mutation, PFIC1 disease, and the phenomenon of diarrhea that makes managing these patients difficult after liver transplantation. In that setting, an abnormal gut is confronted with unprecedented levels of bile salts. A normal liver without cholestasis is putting out a different mix of bile salts and a different volume of bile salts from that to which the native gut has been accustomed. And that causes collagenic diarrhea. By inhibiting bile acid, bile salt uptake in the small intestine, it's been possible to get rid of that diarrhea. Is that the take-home message of your paper? Yes, yes, thank you. Um, this is really one of the um, ongoing catastrophes, so to say. I'm hesitating to, to say problems, but this is more than a problem. It is a catastrophe. You transplant a child because you have to, because there's end-stage liver disease. 
um, and then you end up in a situation that is probably worse for the patient, is probably worse than um, the situation pre-transplant. You have ongoing failure to thrive, you have um, diarrhea that is so uncontrollable that these children usually cannot go to uh, public kindergartens or definitely find it hard to go to, to school. Um, so uh, around the world every center really tries to overcome this, this uh, problem and um, our contribution was to try out this novel um, drug, Odevixibat, um, which is, is an IBET inhibitor and leads to increased excretion of bile salts via the normal intestinal path, um, breaking the enteropathic circulation. And we presume it is probably a feedback mechanism via FGF19 that reduces bile salt production in the liver and gets some relief for these children. But clearly this is, is only an observation yet and we need to do more work and better define the background and if this is a persistent response to the drug or if this is just an incidental finding. I remember hearing stories in Amish kitchens about children who had bilar disease, the original bilar disease, and who had come to liver transplantation. They couldn't work outside the home. When they went to school, they had to ask for the desk in the corner of the classroom that was closest to the outhouse, because they had to bolt whenever they were caught short with diarrhea. So this is a real advance in terms of quality of life and certainly less problematic than would be ileal resection or persistent percutaneous biliary diversion. So I think that's a major advance and I'm pleased. I, I am curious though, in your article you don't mention sonographic follow-up of steatosis of the liver, which often accompanies this sort of diarrhea. Um, if I'd been your second reviewer, I'd have said, what did the sonogram show? But you didn't publish that. So tell us here and now. Personal communication, Professor Bauman. Ultrasonography is very subjective, so it's difficult. Um, Alex, you put me on the spot quite rightly. So, of course, as a hepatologist, this is very important. Um, and I agree that we need to follow this up. Um, it may get a little bit better, but with the subjectivity of ultrasonography, um, I, I'm a little bit reluctant to make a statement too strong to say, oh, this is all getting better. I got you. How about everybody out there? This is your chance to make a real contribution if you're following these FIC1 deficient PFIC1 patients. Get in touch with Uli. Talk with him. Say, what are the studies that we ought to be performing in these experiments of nature that have wound up in our hands? That's what SBGAN is all about, is collaboration, sharing ideas, sharing patients, and making progress that a single center, a single physician, can't make on her own. With that in mind, um, it's almost a word for another time, Willie. 
Um, and now it's a matter of choice, choice among podcast alternatives. It's also a matter of choice as in, what's the song that you're going to nominate for us? Is it an English song? Is it a German song? We always ask at this point in the podcast what you'd like your listeners to hear. How about it? Very difficult question. Um, I thought I'd go for Marmorstein and Eisenbricht. Do you know that? Marmor, Stein und Eisenbricht. Marble, stone and iron break. So what's the, what's the next line? But not our love. This is this is a kind of a. Is it fair to say it's a party song? Um, this is usually played at at um, parties at an advanced stage. It's older than I am, but it's still popular. It is still on, and it's still, I would say, uh, a great German contribution to global culture. As soon as I get done with this podcast, Oli, I'm heading off to YouTube. Weine nicht, wenn der Regen fällt. Dam, 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 dam. Es gibt einen, der zu dir hält. Dam, 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 dam. To listen to the song in full length, please check out our Espigan playlist. Thank you so much for your for your contribution today, and everybody out there, until the next time. <laughs>